0: Well, good morning, everybody. So good to see you today. Uh, we are actually starting a brand new summer series this morning. But before we uh, jump into our study of the Word of God today, I want to give you a heads up about something really exciting that's coming this fall. And here's the news this October, Southwinds is going to be 75 years old as a church. Now, um, (laughs) that may surprise some of you, but actually, we began, our church was born in 1947, and we think it's a big deal, and so we're going to be celebrating that, and that's going to be happening across the fall from September 18th all the way to November 20th. Uh, We're going to be involved in just a season of celebrating in a lot of different ways. We're going to be learning about some of the things in our past and remembering some of the amazing things that God has done. Uh, we're going to be dreaming <laughs> about even more amazing things that God can do in the future. God has so much in store for us. Don't you think? Amen. Amen. And uh, it's just going to be uh, it's just going to be really really exciting. I think a lot of fun. We're working on a lot of different great ways for all of us to get involved in this celebration, and don't have time uh, to talk about them today, but we want you to know about it, we want you to get this on your calendar, and as we get closer, we're gonna obviously be sharing a lot more detail. So, uh, today, if you are interested in finding out how you could be part, in in any way, lots of different ways of planning, uh, serving, um, you know, celebrating with us, giving some leadership, uh, just email info at southwinds.org. Tell us you're interested. We'll get in touch uh, when we have more information. So hope you're looking forward to that. Uh, get your calendars out. Mark that down. Well, our summer series that we're starting today is called Failing Forward. And over the summer, we're going to be just talking together, exploring God's word about the reality that we all fail, Right? Everybody fails. Failure is is part of the human experience in a fallen and broken world. But the question is, how can we turn our failures into something good? How how can we learn from our failures and fail forward? Uh, Each week, what we're going to do is take a look at some of the uh, people in the Bible who failed, and there's a lot of them because they're just like us. We're going to look at their lives. We're going to see what God has taught them. We're going to see how they move forward. And I want to kind of start here. Um, You probably, when you you hear about failure, you don't think about failure as funny, unless it's somebody else's failure, right? You know, if it's someone else's, it's different. Because here's how I know this. Some of you spend way too much time watching videos of people failing on the internet. Am I right? You know, fail videos is this whole genre. And, And people love to see people fail. A few years ago, A man by the name of Stephen Pyle wrote a book entitled The Book of Failures. And it really has some incredible stuff. This is really old school books, you know, things that are printed on paper between a couple of, you know, covers, stuff like that. It was a book. And uh, he writes about this one guy who's pretty interesting between 1962, 1977, a British man whose name was Arthur Pedrick. Uh, This guy actually patented... 162 different inventions. And that sounds impressive. Doesn't sound like a failure probably. But the fact was none of his inventions were ever used commercially. Here are some of his best ideas. Um, A a bicycle with amphibious capability. Who's in the market for an amphibious (laughs) bicycle? Bicycle. Um, He also invented this arrangement where you could drive your car from the back seat. Now, some of you, you already have that arrangement in your life. It's been there for years, so you're going no big deal. Um, He had several golf inventions, uh, including a golf ball that you could steer in flight. I mean, I'd be down for that. That sounds like a really great thing. And he described himself as the one-man think tank basic research laboratories of Sussex. And he had, Arthur Pedrick, one idea that outshone them all. He proposed this plan whereby the deserts of the world could be irrigated by sending a constant supply of snowballs from the polar region through this massive network of giant pea shooters. I I promise you I'm not making that one up. Stephen Powell also tells about the time in 1978 when the British Army took over emergency firefighting because the firemen were on strike and an elderly lady called the firemen in, uh, you, you know this, to retrieve her cat from a tree, classic fireman duties. And they arrived quickly, the army did. They skillfully rescued the cat, uh, got the cat down out of the tree. Um, and they were getting ready to drive away, but this lady was so thankful that she uh, wanted them to come in, her heroes, for tea. And so they said, okay, uh, we'll have some tea and they, they did that and then they got back in their, uh, their vehicles and they drove off fondly waving goodbye and they ran over the cat. Um, which may or may not be a fail, I'm not sure. Um, but I think you'd have to give uh, the prize for the greatest uh, failure, the most useless weapon of all time to the Russian army. They invented what they were wanting to call the dog mine and their, their plan, this is for you cat people who always hate me talking about cats, uh, their plan was to tr- train dogs to associate food with the underside of tanks and hoping that the dogs would then run hungrily under uh, the advancing German Panzer divisions. So they trained these dogs. They strapped bombs to the dogs' back. They were supposed to run and go under German tanks, blow up German tanks. But there was just one problem. The, the dogs only associated food with Russian tanks. And so the plan that was launched the first day of Russia's involvement in World War II actually ended that day. It was abandoned because the dogs with the bombs on their back forced an entire Russian division to be in massive retreat. It didn't work. So uh, failure actually can be funny, but only when it's someone else's, right? Only when someone else is failing. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, you just hate Failure. I think some of you could have belonged to that, you know, Karate Kid Cobra Kai Dojo. Remember that? Failure does not exist in this dojo, does it? No, sensei. Defeat does not exist in this dojo, does it? No, sensei. See, we hate failure. We, we don't want to talk about it. In fact, a lot of us live in denial of it. But it's interesting, if you read the Bible... And you pay attention, you'll see that the Bible is so different. The Bible never glosses over failure. The Bible always faces failure squarely on page after page after page. You ever thought about this? The Bible is regularly depicting people who failed. I mean, it just starts with the first human beings, Adam and Eve. Massive fail, right? Noah, he failed. Abraham, father of the faithful, he was a failure in many ways. Moses failed. Samuel, the prophet, failed. King David, man after what? God's own heart, he failed. The prophet Jonah failed. I mean, all through the pages of Scripture, we're finding failure. And and what I want you to see today is an incredibly important truth. And it's simply this. It's the title of our message. Your failure isn't final. Your failure isn't final because we have a Savior There is always hope for restoration from failure. There is always hope for us to be able to move forward. And we learn this lesson, I think, maybe supremely in a chapter at the end of the Gospel of John. It's John chapter 21. Uh, I I'd invite you to go ahead and get your Bible uh, open or or turned on. Get there and be ready. And I I just want to get us thinking about this because it's, it's very possible that you're here today and you feel like a failure. Maybe that's kind of the the dominating feeling you have about yourself right now. Maybe it's been a failed marriage. Maybe it was a failed business. Maybe it's a moral failure or it's failed parenting as you look at your kids or it's failure to reach goals that you've made for yourself. Maybe, in light of what's been happening in our culture this week, the last couple of days, maybe your failure has to do with abortion. But you know, if you think about our failures If you're a Christ follower, the most painful failure would be to fail Jesus. Does that make sense? Do you agree with that? And if you can identify with this pain of failing Jesus, then you can identify with Peter, and then you can know that there's gonna be good news for you in this story here in John 21, because this story is for failures. This story is our story, it's Peter's story, Few people in history have failed like Peter, and you, you probably know at least the broad outline of the story. He, he denied Jesus his Lord three times, but there's good news in this. Few people have also been used more by God than Peter after Jesus restored him. And there's a, there's a big idea that I want you to, to get hold of today, and it's simply like this. Your failure has not put you out of the reach of Jesus and and his restoring grace, your failure is not final. Anybody wanna say amen? Amen. See, in John 21, what we find is Peter in rehab, and Jesus is doing the counseling. And I'm, I'm gonna show you three truths as we work our way through this chapter, three truths about why Failure isn't final. You can write these down on your notes uh, as you're taking them in the app. First of all, Jesus' grace is greater than your failure. Now, this whole story is really more about Jesus' grace than it is about Peter, and, and we're going to see that, but uh, it, it's greater. That's where we start. Jesus' grace is greater than your failure. I want you to notice as we go through this, through this how gracious Jesus is with these disciples, especially Peter. If you don't know much about Peter's backstory, let me catch you up real quickly. Peter has this history of great starts and failed finishes. Remember the story when Peter climbs out of a boat on a stormy sea of Galilee one night, he walks on water, great start, but then he he goes down. Uh, later on at uh, Caesarea Philippi the, the peter is with jesus and jesus is transfigured and, and and peter is here's the question from jesus who do people say that i am and peter gets it right he says you are the christ you're the son of the living God. And, and then Jesus, after that great start by Peter, mentions his cross, and Peter turns to rebuking Jesus. And Jesus goes from, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, to, Get behind me, Satan. Failed finish. It's quite a failure. But the greatest failure in Peter's life happened right before uh, this story, a few weeks earlier. In John 13, Peter boasts to Jesus, I I will lay down my life for you. But just hours after that boast, Peter fails massively in in the face of the threat of probably a junior high girl. Um, And they're scary sometimes, I, I understand. But Peter fails massively. He, he denies Jesus three times. And Luke in his gospel tells us at one point their eyes met. And Peter looks at Jesus. And Jesus looks at Peter. And Peter runs out. And, and Luke says he wept bitterly. You, you can feel his shame and feel his brokenness. And, and here's the reality about Peter's failure that we, we know about. Peter's failure is actually going to kind of trail him the rest of his life tradition tells us that when Peter preached, there would be hecklers, and hecklers would, they would crow at him, cock-a-doodle-doo, you know, like a rooster, mocking him for his failure. It's even interesting that today, if you go to Jerusalem, they they have a place where they believe is the place where, where Peter actually denied Jesus, and they have signs that point to that place, so if you're a tourist, you can find it and go there, and the sign is a rooster with an arrow pointing the way to this place. Peter's failure, it stayed with him. That's how he is symbolized for many people, kind of like his mascot is the rooster. But here's the thing, that's not, not how Jesus saw Peter, not how Jesus saw him. He didn't look at Peter and see a failure. And let me just say to you, he doesn't look at you and see a failure. If you're his child, he doesn't look at you and see a failure, Look how this story begins. Verse one says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Notice, it's very significant. Two times, John says Jesus revealed himself, and this is telling us it's not an accidental meeting. Jesus has a plan for his disciples. He's, he's revealing himself so that he can teach them some things that are very, very important. And I think Jesus is doing something really fascinating here. This is very crucial uh, to pick up on. You can check it out later in your own study. If you go back to Luke chapter 5, which is the account that Luke gives of the original call of the disciples, you will see that that story and this story, they're very similar. And what Jesus is actually doing in John 21 is this kind of reenactment, the similar place, similar commission, similar circumstances They're on the beach, they're at the sea. And John gives us this list of the disciples who are there. Look at verses two and three. It says, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin Nathanael of Cana in Galilee. The sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. And you should ask yourself, well, what's going on here? Why are they fishing? And there's a lot of interpretations. Uh, some people have taken kind of an extreme position and, and said that the disciples are in total despair, that they have given up on following Jesus, and so they're just returning to their former way of life. They're, they're fishermen. But, but I don't think that's what's happening here. You can't forget that, that Jesus actually told these disciples to go back to Galilee after the resurrection and he would meet them there. But at this point he hasn't shown up yet and maybe they're growing impatient and maybe they're just hungry. I mean they had to eat, they're still human beings, right? And so they do what they they all know how to do, which, which is fish. So I don't I don't think they're running away from Jesus. And and, uh, what we see here also in the stories we keep going is that when they recognize Jesus, Peter is going to dive into the water to swim to Jesus. And Peter looks like a guy eager to see Jesus, not someone running from him. But we still know, we still know that not everything is right. There are still some things that need to be said. Now, if you go back and and read, you'll see that that, that Jesus has already appeared to Peter post-resurrection, but he hadn't used the previous time to restore him. And that's what he's gonna do now. And he's gonna do it publicly. He's going to do it in the presence of these other disciples. It's very, very clear that, that God is sovereignly orchestrating this whole event. And that's probably why John tells us they caught nothing. They are being led to see their need for their savior. Verse four says, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus, and maybe it was too far away, maybe it was his glorified body, they didn't recognize him. Verse five, Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? Painful question to ask a fisherman who hasn't caught anything. They answered him, no. He he said to them, and here's an echo of Luke, Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Almost the same thing happened in Luke chapter five when Jesus first called him. John says, so they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And John is signaling to us, the readers, this is, is a miracle. Verse seven says, that disciple whom Jesus loved, and that's John referring to himself, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work. He threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards off. So this is how Jesus initiates this restoration from failure. And I want you to notice how tender, how gracious that it is. I want you to notice as we keep going that it is a call to go back to the basics. In fact, I'll state it as a a principle. Being restored from failure involves going back to basics in our life of discipleship. It's it's like starting over again. Jesus says, let me take you back. I wanna take you back, men, to that first encounter we had by the lake where I called you to follow me. Is Jesus today calling anyone here to get back to some basics, what it means to follow him? Jesus was calling them back to basics. And I also think we shouldn't miss that Jesus is really giving us a a good model for restoring other people, this gentleness that we see. That's how we should restore people with gentleness. Galatians 6, 2 tells us that. And and we see this play out here in verse nine and following. It says, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. I'm gonna come back to that in a moment. With fish laid out on it and, and bread And just notice here, Jesus doesn't need their fish. Jesus has got his own fish, apparently. He's already made breakfast. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. And so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Anybody ever wonder what the spiritual significance of 153 was? Anybody interested in hearing what that is? I'll tell you, it means nothing. <laughs> uh, it, there's no spiritual significance. It, it just means they caught 153 fish. And actually what it is for us, it's the sign of an eyewitness account. It's the kind of detail that you, you put down because that's just what happened. You're, you're not making the story up. You were there, you saw, this is what happened. And, and and also it's, I think, indicative that John's a fisherman and fishermen count their fish. If you're a fisherman, say amen. You know, fishermen count their fish, right? John also says they were large fish. Fishermen also are concerned about the size of their fish. It's like you guys catch any fish? Yeah, large ones. 153. That's what's going on here. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead you know jesus <laughs> he's so full of grace he has a history of eating with sinners right i mean he does it all through his ministry and again jesus is eating he's meeting he's serving he's blessing he's he's making breakfast i mean just think about this these guys these guys who stepped out of that boat one day they are going to change the world They got out of the boat and they had breakfast with Jesus and one day, one day people are gonna name schools and hospitals and churches and cities all around the world after these disciples and it's such a contrast when we look at it historically. You know, back then, most powerful man in the world is Caesar. Today, all Caesar's got is a pizza and a salad. That's it, you know? But but here's John. Here's John, the beloved disciple. He's having breakfast on the beach. John, who's writing this gospel we're reading, the most published piece of literature in world history. Here's James, who's not actually gonna live much longer. He's gonna be martyred pretty soon. We read about it in Acts 12. Here's Thomas. Tradition tells us that he was martyred in India as a missionary, I was thinking about that this week. Some of you are part of this family. You trace your spiritual lineage back 2,000 years to this man named Thomas who's there at the beach. It's just incredible to think about. And then here's Peter and some others. And by the way, how'd you like to be the other guys? You know, John names all these guys, and then there's two others. You know, you're like, this is my one chance to get my name in the Bible, and I'm just two others, (laughs) But they're all there. They're having a meal with Jesus. They're eating with Jesus. And by the way, I don't know if you know this, but the Sea of Galilee is filled with tilapia, so that's probably what they were eating. And, and maybe, maybe that's how we should do it today. You know, Just grill some tilapia over charcoal. Get your life group to come over and, and sit around and think about the grace of Jesus. Eat some breakfast. Actually, this charcoal fire in verse nine, is a significant detail. In fact, the the word, the Greek word translated charcoal fire is only mentioned one other place in the New Testament, and that's a couple of pages back in John's gospel. It's John 18, 18. And it's mentioned because that is where Peter denied Jesus. Jesus was denied by Peter as Peter stood by a charcoal fire. And I don't think Jesus did this because... You know, tilapia tastes better over charcoal than gas. It's Jesus' way of reminding Peter that his grace was greater than Peter's failure. And you can imagine, you can imagine what... Peter would have thought when he smelled the charcoal. Do you, do you know that our most powerful uh, sense that we have—the the sense that, uh, of all of our senses that uh, lingers the longest—that we have the deepest memories—it's it, about our sense of smell, and, and we associate, don't we, experiences with certain aromas? And for Peter, a charcoal fire in this moment—it was the aroma of betrayal. It was his greatest failure. But a charcoal fire is about to become the aroma of grace for the rest of Peter's life. Because Jesus is about to restore Peter Do you remember that Jesus actually promised it in Luke chapter 22, verse 32? He told Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And then he says, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. See, Jesus knew Peter would turn again, that he would be restored and renewed by by God. But, But this restoration here, it has to happen first. So, I just have a question for you and I'd like you to write it down. I'd like you to take it with you. I'd like you to think about it in the days that are ahead. It's simply this question. What is the aroma of Jesus' grace to you? What's the aroma of Jesus' grace to you? And again, I hope you're seeing it. Are you seeing it? Are you not missing it? The the good news the good news here is that your failure, whatever it is, doesn't matter what it is, it has not put you out of the reach of Jesus restoring grace. Jesus is still having breakfast with sinners. He is still restoring and he is still reinstating sinners and that, Southwinds, is good news. Amen. That's the first thing we see. Here's the second thing you can write down. Jesus' grace calls us to renew our love for him. Again, as I've been saying, uh, Jesus is taking them back to their initial call, and what he does in doing that, you, you'll see, is he focuses them on the most basic experience. It's the heart of what it means to be a Christ follower, and I'll just put it like this. We love Jesus, right? We love Jesus. I mean, I, I would just tell you, if someone asks you, why, why are you a Christian, Uh, You could say several things, a number of things I suppose, but at the heart of what you ought to say is, I love Jesus, I love Jesus. And that's, that's what Jesus is doing. He, he, he takes them back to the initial call by these, the surrounding, and then he focuses them on this basic experience of a Christ follower loving Jesus. And, and again, it's because when you've rebelled, when you've failed, you need to go back to the basics. It, it, it's all about this. It's all about loving. It's all about following Jesus. Just the basics. It's not real complicated. Just get back To loving Jesus, and that's what Jesus does. And he he does this in this striking way. He asks Peter three times the simple question Do you love me? And he's doing that, if you don't know this already, he's doing that for a simple reason. He's doing that because Peter denied him three times. And we know that's the case because in verse 17, it tells us Peter was grieved because he asked him a third time. Peter knows what Jesus is doing. And, and Jesus had predicted beforehand that Peter would deny him three times. So now what we see is that in his grace, he is calling Peter to renew his love for Jesus three times. Listen to verses 15 through 17. When they had finished breakfast, Son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Some of you may have heard a common uh, interpretation of this passage uh, down through the years and I think it's important to uh, address this here you know, it goes like this. Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? And Peter responds three times, I love you. But underneath there's something going on is the interpretation because we know there are three basic words for love in Greek, the words agape, eros, and phileo, and eros is is sexual love, agape is a deep, sacrificial, giving love, and then phileo is brotherly love, and and people often read this and say this, you know, when you look at the Greek and you see Jesus saying love, the first two times he says, do you agape me? He uses that word. But then the third time Jesus says, do you phileo me? Uh, You have a brotherly love for me. And then you look at Peter's responses and each time that Peter responds to these three questions, he uses the word phileo. And so some people look at that and they say, well, what's happening here is that Jesus is saying, Peter, do you love me with agape love? And every time Peter is saying, no, I only have phileo love for you. I don't love you to that degree. That's what some people say, but I don't think that's really what's going on. And and I'll give you quickly the reasons why. First of all, when you read the entire gospel of John, you will see that John uses the words agape and phileo kind of interchangeably throughout his gospel. He doesn't really make this clear distinction. Second, and most likely, this conversation actually would have taken place in Aramaic, not Greek, and Aramaic doesn't have these distinctions. But then third, I think most importantly, if this would have been the point that Jesus was making, Peter shouldn't have answered yes every time, right? I mean, if there was a difference in the type of love, Peter should have said, no, Jesus, I only have phileo love for you. And I think the same kind of thing is going on with those words lamb and sheep and feed and tend. There's, uh, there's not really a difference. It's just synonymous words being used. Um, that's kind of how we talk a lot of times. The point, well, what's actually going on here, what really matters here is that Jesus says it three times. So that he points out Peter's threefold denial. Jesus is taking Peter back to the basics. Do you love me? And Peter, will you feed my my sheep? And this is still important for us today as we think about restoration from failure. And here's a very significant thing. Listen to this. Jesus doesn't ask you, did you love me? He asks, do you love me? Present tense, do you love me? What, what's going on here? What, what is happening here? I, I think we need to see this, that what, what Jesus is doing as he talks about love. If you look at Peter in these verses and you look at Peter in his life most of the time, what characterizes Peter most of the time is his strenuous effort. In this chapter, Peter's swimming, you know? He's swimming to Jesus. By the way, by the way, um, I I kind of was envisioning this and so Peter jumps in the water and starts swimming and the guys start rowing the boat. Boat, uh, Boats get rowed faster than people swimming, right? And so I kind of imagine at some point the guys are rowing, they're like, Peter, you could get in the boat, we're going there too. Seriously, Peter, you don't need to swim, you know? So Peter's just, he's just strenuously trying all this stuff. He's swimming. He's the one going hauling the big net up to Jesus, doing it by himself. I got it, Jesus. Look at me, Jesus. I'm swimming. I'm hauling this big net of fish for us. And meanwhile, Jesus is standing there besides a breakfast of fish that he's already prepared. Here's a question. Does Jesus need Peter's fish? no. Jesus already had fish on the fire. Where'd he get them? Answer is, who knows? He's Jesus. Have you noticed in the Gospels that Jesus kind of has this special relationship with fish? Like, <laughs> he, he just makes them swim wherever he wants them to swim sometimes. He can take five fish and feed 5,000 people. He can probably just create fish out of thin air. I don't know. Maybe on the shore that morning he said, fish, come on. And they just jumped out of the water and flopped over and landed on his fire. I I don't know. The point is Jesus doesn't need our fish. And, And what John is doing is showing us here a contrast between Peter feeling like he needs to prove himself and Jesus' simple invitation to come and have breakfast with him. You see, I think we can say that for Peter, his relationship to God has always been about working and striving and proving himself, showing that he's the best. I'm not gonna deny you, Jesus. Even if all the rest of these disciples do, I'm swimming, Jesus. I'm hauling fish for you, Jesus. But notice Jesus is not asking Peter to prove anything. He doesn't even need Peter's fish. He doesn't need your fish. He's prepared a table for Peter, and he's just saying, Peter, my grace is all that you need. I don't need you to prove yourself. I already love you. I'll always love you. I'm just calling you to love me. And we we talk about this here around here at South Winds. You know, if the gospel has one agenda in your life, it is to demonstrate to you and convince you that your performance is never the basis of your acceptance before a holy God. That's the gospel. And so that relates to failure like this. God allows you to fail so many times, I think, to show you that it's his grace. It is never your righteousness that is the basis of your acceptance. And I'll just say this, the greatest enemy of the gospel is always self-sufficiency. And that happens sometimes in lives of people like us, even people who've come to know Jesus I think so many times, and maybe this is you, be honest with yourself. Look at your heart right now if you have failed. Is it true that the biggest enemy, the biggest obstacle to you coming back from failure is your self-sufficiency? You are just trying. You're working hard. You're swimming. You're hauling. You're trying to get yourself back to Jesus. You're trying to prove you're good enough. And Jesus just says, all you need to do is love me. Just love me. See, this is the heart of what's going on here. Peter, uh, Jesus is getting to Peter's heart and he's doing it through a wound and that wound is remembering what he had done, his denial of Jesus. And this, this memory grieves Peter. It's painful for him. Restoration is often painful, but the purpose behind the pain is always something good. Jesus here, he's humbling Peter and Peter needs that humility that's what Jesus so often does with us. He humbles us, he, he breaks us open, he lays us bare and exposed before him. Uh, again, uh, we are seeing this take place in a couple of ways here in this scene. You know, One way is this question, do you love me more than these? He's, he's asking you know, Peter to recall his boast. Peter, do you really, really love me more than the other disciples? Because that's what Peter said. I don't care if they all fall away, I'm not gonna fall away, Jesus. And now he's being humbled. And he's being humbled in the presence of the guys he bragged against. He's being humbled. He's also being reinstated in the presence of disciples. He's also being led to utter dependence on Jesus because in the end he looks to Jesus and he says that last line, Lord, you know everything. And he's really kind of saying, I can't fake it. And Jesus is just saying to him what he's saying to some of you right now. He's saying, Peter, stop striving. He's saying, Peter, stop comparing yourself to the other disciples. He's saying, Peter, stop being prideful. Stop bragging about your superiority. Just humble yourself before me and ask for my mercy and you will always receive it. See, what in the end is the requirement to be restored from failure? And it's simply this, love Jesus. Do you love Jesus? That's the question. Third thing that we want to see is Jesus' grace empowers us to follow him faithfully. If you look at this text and you think about what's going on here, there's really kind of this past, present, future progression to being restored from failure. If you can think about it like this, Jesus' grace washes away our past failures Jesus' grace simply just calls us to love Jesus in this present moment. And now we're going to see Jesus' grace gives us the power that we're going to need to follow him in the future. And that's what this is about. After failure, we demonstrate repentance and restoration. How? By obedience to Jesus' will. See, real restoration, which comes out of real repentance, always is going to result in, in real fruit in our, our lives. We're going to obey, and this doesn't mean perfection. I mean, Peter's not gonna be perfect. We're gonna see that in this text again before we're done today. Um, we're also gonna learn, if we keep reading in the New Testament in Galatians chapter two, that Peter made a serious mistake that another apostle, Paul, had to rebuke him about. But, but Jesus' grace empowered Peter to, to live a, a life of faithful following. And there were two commitments Jesus was calling him to, two things Jesus was asking him to do to demonstrate his repentance and restoration. You can write these down first, just to care for the Savior's sheep. And then second, to submit to the Savior, Savior's will. That Jesus is just telling Peter, Peter, you need to feed my sheep. And then if you go to the, The book of Acts, which is the next chapter in Peter's life that we we know about. What do we see Peter doing there? Well, we see Peter feeding sheep. And that's because Jesus cares about sheep. Notice he doesn't tell Peter to feed Peter's sheep. He says, feed my sheep. They're Jesus' sheep. And so he cares for his church. We, we, We need to understand this is our role. Do you know that this is a command to each and every one of us? See, not everyone, some of you think this is what pastors are supposed to do, and that's true. Not everyone's called to be a pastor, but if you know Jesus, you're called to care for Jesus' sheep because you're part of that flock. You're, you're called to be involved in loving other people, serving other people, helping other people because you're, you're part, you're part of, of Jesus' sheep. Notice verses 18 to 23. This is where Peter's also uh, being charged to submit to Jesus' will. In verse 18, it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. What does that mean? Well, verse 19 tells us, this he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. See, John is explaining that Jesus is now telling Peter how he's going to die. And according to tradition, Peter, like his Lord, died by crucifixion. Some tradition says he may have been crucified upside down. Jesus is saying, Peter, this is what it will cost you to follow me, following Jesus. It is costly. But don't miss this. Oh, don't, do not miss this. In Jesus' metaphor, did you notice, this this metaphor for dying on a cross, he uses this strange image. He compares stretching out your hands to die on a cross, he compares that to being a little child who stretches out his hands to his parents. And he says, Peter, you know, when you were little, you used to spread out your hands and people would pick you up and they would would dress you and they would take you around because you were a child. And he said, Peter, this is how you're gonna die. You're gonna spread out your hands toward me. This picture of childlike dependency, intimacy, trust, But that childlike posture toward Jesus, just receiving his grace and his mercy and his love, that is what would give Peter the strength to die like that. See, Peter, he'd always thought that his strength came from being a man, a man who would prove himself better and stronger than others. And Jesus says, Peter, no, your strength your strength is gonna come from depending on me the way that a child depends on his parent. See, how, how, think about this. How in the world did a man like Peter who would deny three times that he knew Jesus, how did that man turn into a guy who would endure persecution and you must see this. It was through a deep and profound experience of the grace of Jesus. See, friends, the the most powerful force in a Christ follower's life is our experience of grace. In fact... You might put it like this. Jesus chose Peter to lead his church, not despite his failures, but because of his failures. His failures actually put him in touch with the grace of God, and God's grace is actually where a leader's real strength comes from, and it's actually a leader's most valuable resource to be able to help other people who have needs, and you can only pour God's grace into other people when you are filled with that grace yourself. And so that means it's not Peter's successes that made him a great leader. It was exactly his failures because his failures were the gateway to receive, uh, to see Jesus and Jesus' grace, his need for grace. And Peter's need for grace was his gateway to Jesus and his intimacy with Jesus would be his gateway to everything else. You see? Failing forward it all comes back to receiving Jesus' grace and then just loving him. Why? Because he has been so good. So very good to us. Amen? Do you love Jesus Christ? Will you follow him? I mean, why wouldn't you want to follow this one who died for you, who rose from the grave, and then invites you to breakfast, who eats meals with sinners? There is no one like him. Amen? And then there's this conclusion that John makes, and it's, it's kind of, it's delightful, I think. Uh, it says in Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And when Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? See, (laughs) Uh, Jesus looks at Peter and says, hey, Peter, you're gonna die on a cross. And Peter's reaction is, well, what about John? It's kind of like your kids, right? You know, One of them gets punished and it's like, what about him? right, that's really what's going on and why am I dying on the cross and you can kind of maybe see a little bit of rivalry going on here, you know, John was kind of the teacher's pet, you know, he calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved, I don't know if that rubbed the other disciples the wrong way sometimes, he was the one leaning back on Jesus, you know, chest during the last supper asking who was going to betray Jesus, you know, sometimes it just seems like he was more special than everybody else. You know, there's a very profound application here. It's in verse 22. Jesus said to him, that is Peter, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. You follow me. In other words, it's really none of your business, Peter. All you need is to follow me. Once again, we are right back to the basics you know, we're, we're not carbon copy disciples. Everybody has a path that Jesus gives us to follow. We're supposed to just follow Jesus wherever he leads us. We're not supposed to get caught up in comparing ourselves to what other people have in their, in their lives. We just accept because he is our Lord and we know that he loves us and we know that he's full of grace to us. We know that he's always good for us. We accept that whatever path he gives us is our best path. Because Jesus wants our best, always. Verse 23 says, so the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die yet. Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? And so let me just leave you with this. We gather in this place This is a room full of failures, amen? We all fail. That means we all need to be restored. That means we all need to hear our failures are never final. Will you just say that? Some of you maybe need to say this very much today. Say, my failure isn't final. Say it. My failure isn't final. This is the good news for us today. We have a savior and he restores sinners and our failures are never final in him. His grace is enough. And all God's people together said, amen. 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 We're gonna end a little bit differently um, right now before we receive our offering and pray. I I wanna speak uh, just a brief word about an issue that I think is in forefront of so many of our minds, and that is the Supreme Court's decision on Friday. And I know I can't say everything, and I'm not even gonna try to say everything, and so if I don't say something you think I should say, uh, be patient, okay? Um, But I think I first of all want to say, um, as pastor of our church, that we are grateful, deeply grateful for this decision. Because we are a church of Jesus' followers, and we believe that all people are created in God's image, and therefore we believe uh, that abortion uh, is, is a deep and serious evil. But we also understand that we are a broken people. That's what we've been talking about this whole time, right? We're all failures. And we also understand that much grace is needed, much patience is needed, we understand that some of us in this room may be grappling with something related to this issue. And so we're going to be grateful for what God has done at the same time knowing this issue is, is not going away, this issue is not over by any, any means, especially where we live. I mean, where we live, you know this, right? Not much is likely to change here in our state. But we are going to respond as a church. Or our, our response is going to build and go along the way. But I, I want you to see um, a few things we're going to put on the screen just for, for, for a beginning. And, and it's this. Uh, we want to be praying for our nation. God's word commands God's people to do that. We want to commit to pray for those who are affected in any way. And there are so many people, and probably many of us, maybe no one else knows, but many of us in this room. And uh, we want to encourage you to get involved in this. We as a church have been involved in many different ways uh, that um, revolve around this issue. Uh, We invite you today even to join us on the courtyard to get some information about uh, the Pregnancy Resource Center of Tracy, uh, which we have supported for years to get information about adoption and foster care. Many of you are involved in this area of serving the world. Um, We've talked about this just recently here. Uh, There's respite care, there's adoption care. uh, We have life groups uh, for adoption and foster care. And then there are other care groups ministering to people uh, with needs. And so we just wanna encourage you to think about these things today. We're gonna pray now as God's people together uh, for our nation for everyone who's involved in this. And as I'm leading us in prayer, our worship team's gonna come out and our ushers are gonna come forward. And then we're gonna receive our offering as we always do. And uh, and then we're gonna celebrate God's goodness to us as we continue to sing his praises. So would you bow your heads? Father God, we do give you thanks for this decision. And Lord, we know it doesn't, it doesn't resolve so much, but we are grateful for the progress that has been made and we're grateful for the lives that will be saved because of this decision. And so we pray, Lord, for our nation. Lord, we pray for peace. We, we pray even, Lord, for those who would see us as their enemies. Lord, you tell us to pray for our enemies. And so we, we pray for those who believe that this decision is wrong Lord, most of all, we, we pray right now for anyone who is impacted uh, by this whole issue of abortion, whether it's been that they have had an abortion or maybe uh, they encouraged someone to get an abortion and maybe, Lord, they regret that. Maybe they look back on that as one of the failures in their lives. Lord, would you make them aware of your mercy and your patience and your grace and your love. And Lord, you, you call us to serve our world, to love our, our world. And Lord, we have sought to do that uh, down through the years. And Lord, we wanna continue to do that in, in the different ways uh, that we've mentioned and, and Lord, even more. And we ask that you would, you would bless our, our efforts. We ask that as we serve our world, that people would see Jesus and that people would be drawn to him and that people would come to know him to know his forgiveness and his grace and his mercy so that they they too, Lord, can know that their failures in Jesus, their failures are are, are not final. We love you, God. We thank you for your son. And Lord, we pray these things, all of them now, in the name of Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and our Savior, and all God's people together say, Amen. amen.